All right. So uh, last time I had an opportunity to, is that everybody? I'm not trying to roll over anybody. Okay. Uh, we did the first part of Matthew chapter one, and I'll just recap the first 17 verses because uh, it's the one of those things that you look at and you think it's the most boring thing in the Bible. And I did for the longest time. It's like so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. You know, why? Why did you even put that in there? But one of the things that that tells us is, A, God is sovereign. And that's particularly important, at least to me right now, I think to all of us, to look and see that he called this shot from a long time ago. He said this is how his son would be born. And he worked through each of these successive generations such that 14 generations, and then this happened. 14 generations, then that happened. Then 14 generations, and here comes Jesus. In other words, it's exactly on time, which should inform the way we think about how God is handling things. Because to us, stuff looks quickly out of control. We start trying to figure out what's going on, and we start feeling insecure and worried because we can't understand all the moving parts, and it starts looking like, Maybe stuff isn't going to happen the way that it's supposed to. Well, guess what? It's going to happen the way that it's supposed to. On time. Exactly the way that God called the shot. And even the, the second part, which is it equally helps me to understand the sovereignty of God, is that these people in between, we looked at people getting their lives sideways, making terrible decisions, and yet God still got his plan exactly accomplished such as what Michael mentioned in his message, Jesus came at exactly the right time. If you ever put your mind to thinking through how many moving pieces that God had to understand in advance before he ever said, let there be light, he already saw through the temptation in the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, the penalty of sin, what we see in uh, Revelation, I think it's 13, I think it is, maybe 8. Either way, that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That God already saw through all of those circumstances all the way to Jesus' birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And if you go on through to the end of Revelation, you start to understand that he's seen all the way to the end. And the reason that I find that so comforting is that this is one of those moments in time where we could feel like our lives are a bit out of control. Things that we put confidence in, um, things that we thought were solid have proven to be uh, less than solid. And that's a moment that can shake you. But if you can in those moments stop and take a look and realize, look, this is not a surprise to God. He sees these things coming. It doesn't shock Him. And just like Imagine that you're walking this trail and that somebody before you has come through and blazed the trail. They've taken their machete and they've cleared a path. And at each spot where there's something dangerous, they've laid aside provisions. They've put pitons in the side of the sheer rock face walls. They've uh, built a little shack where they knew the weather was going to be bad. This is us walking through this path. It doesn't, the things that shock and surprise us, they don't shock God. He sees them coming. He already made provision for it. And the second thing that I think is worth paying attention to in that short section is that God is not a respecter of persons. Now, we all have been tainted with the idea that 
the outward appearance is the valuable part. It's your performance. You know, it's, it's how many degrees you have on your wall. It's how tall you are or how much hair you have or how well-spoken you are. We all have that in us left over from Adam, which would look at somebody like Saul and see the outside and that he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else and he's charismatic and we would think that's the guy that we want leading our, country, our, our nation. But that's not how God sees stuff. He looks right past that stuff to the heart. He looks at the heart of people. And if he finds in a prostitute like Rahab a heart that would trust him, that's the one that he chooses. He will choose her above all of the people that would seem to be something in that town. And she's part of Jesus' lineage. And how many people like that do you see? And so what that does is that informs me, especially on the heels of Sandy's prayer today, talking about his heart and how he feels, you know, that old dead man is dead. The Lord saw your heart and my heart and everybody's heart in here a long time before you ever came to the place where you surrendered it to him. He already knew who you were. He's the one that put that in you. That's who you truly are. The part that isn't you is the part that was sideways before you surrendered to him. But it's not, and I suspect that we'll all have to do our part in getting away from the idea that at the end of the day, if you're kneeling by your bed and you begin to pray and you, let's say it's me, so I lost my temper and I said something I shouldn't say. That's a thing that could happen to me on any given day. Now I feel like it's hard for me to come before the Lord. I feel like a dog with his tail between his legs and I'm a little scared and I'm thinking at the very least he's disapproving and disappointed in me. But that's false. That's a false idea. If you just read through the scripture, you'll find that he already sees your intention to please him. That's what he's looking at. The fact that it bothers you shows that you've got the kind of heart that he wants to be close to. You see, it's not your performance. When you have a good day and you bow your knees by the side of your bed and fold your hands and you, you feel like, well, today I can run to him. I don't feel like it. he doesn't love you more. You're not more welcome. And so seeing that he chooses all of these people, not on the basis of the things that affect our thinking, but rather like King David himself, part of Jesus' lineage, just the heart. That's the thing that he's after, that heart, the desire to love him, to please him. And that blesses me. So that's just a recap. So I'm going to read this whole section first, because if I don't, I may not get through it all. So this is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. But when he'd considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we, this is the most monumental event in human history. This is God, the same one who, as we heard in uh, Blake's prayer today, stretched out everything on nothing, who created everything that there is, billions and billions of stars and all those galaxies, that God that holds everything together by his power uh, is becoming a human being. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that, around that. Every time I try to think about it, I run out of brain juice before I run out of subject matter. Because there is no, like we think of how Jesus humbled himself and you can look at how it was for him to get down at the feet of his disciples and wash their feet, that that was so humble for the king of the universe to put himself in that position, which is in essence what he did when he left the glory of the courts of heaven. I know you guys have done the same thing, but like if you look at the pillars of creation through the Hubble telescope, or if you look at maybe the bioluminescent creatures that you find in the very depths of the sea, and they're just these riots of brilliant explosions of color and the light that dazzles you, or like we looked at stained glass windows, or I shot you a picture of that, and you see if you cross-section human DNA, that it looks just like one of those beautiful stained glass windows in a cathedral. The colors are brilliant. And that that was Jesus' home and he was surrounded by an innumerable host of angels singing glory and holy. And man, when we just get a glimpse of that, it's, it almost burns us up. It's a little bit more than we can stand. I think that's why I was saying to Sarah earlier today, uh, at least once a day, I'm brought to tears by something beautiful. It just happens. I, and I was trying to figure out what's the deal with that, like... Is there something wrong with me? Or, But you know what I think? I think that tears are what happens when you touch something holy and glorious and that you just, you're just you running out of, you're overflowing, like literally overflowing. There's so much and it's, it's past your capacity that there are very little things like you can fall on your face, you can sing hallelujah, you can jump up and down and clap your hands, you can cry. But you're going to have to let something out because that's going a little bit past your capacity. And that's Jesus' home forever and always. So he crossed the distance of timelessness into time. He left the, the courts of glory and all of that majesty and put that down and became a man. That's the moment where he broke into history and it was just the right time for every reason. The, the Greeks had come through and spread their language as the, the language of commerce throughout the known world. The Romans had come into power and built roads that connected everyone. So the world was made ready for the gospel to be spread right at the time that Jesus was showing up. Also, the death that he had to die was basically perfected by the Romans. They didn't invent crucifixion but they perfected it. And it had to be that. Like it couldn't just be any kind of death because 
in his dying, he had to bear the wrath that all sin deserves. It had to be as gruesome as the cross. So when you think about the timing and all of the moving parts that God foresaw, it should instill in us a sense of confidence that at this moment it's the same. At this moment with the things that we don't understand or didn't foresee, it's the same. He's working stuff out right on time. The moment that he breaks through to somebody's heart and mind and opens their eyes to a truth that they didn't understand before, it's the right moment. You know, the moment that someone say for me, you know, a lot of people that obviously I'm still praying for. Well, the moment that they call me on the telephone or message me or knock on my door, that's the right moment and not before. And I don't have to be worried about it because God has it in his hands, just like he did when he begat Jesus, when Jesus came to this world. And so it says, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and I don't, I want to stop at that word betrothed because we think in terms of engagement. Betrothal is a commitment; it's a covenant relationship. In this day and time, to become betrothed—I'm uh, saying in Jesus' day and time—ordinarily, uh, what would happen is the man would pay the bride price to the family of the bride. Now, you don't pay it all at once. You could, but most people didn't. So probably Joseph had already paid to Mary's family a portion. It's an earnest, like the way that we give engagement rings now represents that. But there are still countries where dowries are paid. And so it's, it's a commitment, okay? And then there would a period would elapse of about a year or so. And that's before the bridegroom comes and gathers his bride. And of course, that's a picture of the moment in time that we're in as the bride of Jesus. We're between the time when he paid the price, and we can look back at that at the cross, and the time that he's coming for us. And we just don't know what day or what hour, but our every thought is in that direction. But it's important to understand that that was a commitment. In order to dissolve a betrothal, you have to divorce. It's not like an engagement where you just cease to be engaged. Okay, the engagement is off. I called the engagement off. No, it's a binding uh, covenant that is made. And uh, the only way to break it is through divorce. And the only just reason for breaking it would be marital infidelity. So before they came together, which just means they hadn't consummated the marriage, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So let's think about that. First of all, through Joseph's eyes, he found her to be pregnant. There's only one way to look at that. Joseph has to look at the one that he put all of this trust in, Mary, and he has to think, she's been unfaithful to me. I don't know that there's a greater pain you know, uh, many of you are married, so you know what it's like to take your heart and put it into somebody else's hand. You're vulnerable. That's the thing. And as far as Joseph could tell, Mary had taken the depth of his commitment and how serious he was about that and just stomped all over it. You mean that's what you think of me, I guess? That's how much I matter to you, that you're just going to throw all of this away, you know? But I find it amazing 
that first God calls him a righteous man. In other words, God was very careful about which parents that he was going to put uh, Jesus in, the family in which he would put Jesus. And even though he's not the physical or biological father of Jesus, Joseph is his legal father. So God beforehand chose two very special people, two outstanding hearts. Mary, which we don't see much about her and her heart in this account, but in Luke's account, there's a fuller rendering. But God is saying that he's a righteous man. And look, after he'd been hurt this way, and that's all that he knows. He doesn't know anything else at this point. It says that rather than, the, the most natural thing would be to hurt somebody back. You would want to vindicate yourself. You would want to make this as public as possible. This woman has hurt me this way. And so your reputation can remain untarnished, plus which it's the most natural thing to the unregenerate man to want to get a little of your own back after being hurt. That's the most natural thing there is. But that's not how Joseph was. He was righteous, and because he was righteous, he could not now continue in marriage to marry, being righteous, because by all indications to his mind, she's been unfaithful. So what that means is that a person breaks a covenant like that. Joseph is setting the example. Sometimes separation is necessary. Sometimes it's justified. Sometimes you can't walk together unless you're agreed. But notice that his heart was not to harm her. He didn't want to bring her disgrace. That what he was going to do, it's the horns of a dilemma. Because to be righteous and to hold to his integrity, he must now divorce her. He can't consummate this marriage and stay righteous. And yet, he still loves her, though she, to all of the way that he can look at it, has hurt him, treated him with contempt, not valued his love for him, his love for her. But he doesn't want to bring her disgrace. He doesn't want to bring her harm. And so... What it says is that he planned to do it secretly uh, rather than make an open show. And that just shows you something of his heart. That's phenomenal. Uh, verse 20 says, but when he had considered this, and I want to stop there just for a second, that's, it shows Joseph's character. He's not making a knee-jerk reaction, which is what a lot of us want to do when we are hurt. He doesn't. He's considering this. The word considered there is, I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's anguish. It's, look, it's the kind of considering that we all have recently gone through. You know, thinking about severing ties and bonds that have been long and meaningful and deep. And it's anguish. It's a torment kind of a thought. But he's applying himself to thinking about it, which means that He's exercising self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Also, that he would submit himself to the Lord's will. He's giving the Lord time to show him which way to go, rather than acting in the haste of the moment. And that's a godly thing to do. And I think it's because of that, of course God knew who he was, that it gave the Lord time to do the following in the second part of the verse. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So there are a couple of things in that. First, God will speak to you in dreams. It doesn't mean that every dream is God speaking, but sometimes he will, and that's normal. If I remember talking to someone who had a worldwide background, and uh, I find that I'm still deprogramming. I'm, I'm doing what the Bible says, which is examining all things and hold fast that which is good. But they were talking about the Holy Spirit being a New Testament phenomenon. And I said, did you read Genesis? Wait, I mean, let's, let's go back to in the beginning, the earth had become without form and void. And what's the next part? And the spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the deep. That's the Holy Spirit, man. That's the Holy Spirit right at the beginning. And uh, Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the, uh, the evening with the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit at work, working with them. And you go right on through, like you read Hebrews, and you find out that uh, Abel is part of the faithful. He was full of God's Holy Spirit. That's what caused him to walk in such a way that pleased the Lord. The Holy Spirit is all the way through the Bible. That's not a New Testament phenomenon. So this is Joseph, uh, whose heart wants to please the Lord. And he's not taking into account a wrong that he suffered. Also notice, the Lord has to talk to him in this dream. So what this means is that Mary did not explain herself. Now, we don't have the rest of the story. We don't know. We don't know. Like, how did it go between the two of them? How did he find that she was with child? Did he come for her? Is it one of those things like they both apparently were living in their parents' house still, you know? And so he would have been preparing a place for them. That was normal. Either he was building an addition to his parents' house or he was building a freestanding structure, probably with a shop since he was a carpenter, you know, a home for them to come to. And they wouldn't have been socially together a lot. This doesn't happen during betrothal. That wouldn't have been normal. So it's possible that he hadn't seen her in the interim between when the angel appeared to her and when she conceived a child. But obviously at whatever time he comes to her and now she's pregnant and I don't know what transpired, but I know this, she didn't explain herself to him. How could she, right? How could you, how could you say to someone, well, this happened by the Holy spirit because the only evidence that would undergird that sort of a claim God would have to do the talking. You see what I mean? Like there was really no other way to let Joseph know. Mary couldn't come to her own defense and explain it because it's a little unbelievable, isn't it? It's one of those things where God is going to have to do the talking if this is going to work. And so Mary just trusted herself to God. Like if God needs to, if he wants this to go ahead, you know, if he wants to salvage my reputation, in front of my beloved that I'm betrothed to, that I want to spend the rest of my life with, God has to do it. She surely sought God on the matter, but she didn't come to her own defense, nor could she, frankly, because there's no way to convince someone of this supernatural thing. It's very much like when Jesus is in the house and the crowd is all gathered up, and these people bring the paralyzed young man, you remember, and they take him all the way up on the roof because they can't get through. And they dig up the tiles and they lower him down. And Jesus looks at it and he knows, of course, what's going on. These people believe so much that Jesus is going to heal him that they will not be stopped. They don't care. They don't care. They just tore up somebody's house. They don't care that they've got a sick, 
guy in pain and they're dragging him upstairs and dropping him down through the roof, you know. He knows that he's there to be healed, but he takes the opportunity to point something out because he says, your sins are forgiven you, son. And everybody is shocked because, wait a minute, are you claiming to be God? Like, you're not just some healer or prophet because only God can forgive sins. And he's like, well, you tell me then. What's easier to do? Is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to say, get up, take your bed and walk? So the point that Jesus was making, and as you know, he healed him, but his healing was the necessary evidence to prove that he was God and that he had the right to forgive sins. In a very similar way, if an angel tells you in a dream, that's the kind of proof you need to know that my wife was not unfaithful, that God did this thing. Any other kind of evidence wouldn't have worked. So, But Joseph gave a space of time because of his faithful heart for the Lord to speak to him in this way. And the Lord came to Mary's defense as well with Joseph by sending this angel. And sometimes in our life, it's just like that. Like There are things that maybe you can't convince people of. There are certain uh, kinds of people that the fact that you make a logical and a rational case is not going to carry the day. Sometimes it just has to be the Lord that breaks through to people. But like Mary, that doesn't mean that we're without an advocate. It doesn't mean that we're hopeless. The, the Lord is still able to speak to people through angels and dreams. And, you know, he knows how to get to people. He got to all of us, right? And some of us are hard cases. So... I find that uh, very comforting and reassuring. It also gives me such a respect and admiration for both of their hearts. Like I see how Joseph would love somebody that he believed had betrayed him and he still didn't want to bring harm to her. That's outstanding. That's, that's very unusual. And Mary was so humble that clearly she was comfortable putting everything in the Lord's hands and the Lord did, was faithful and went to bat for her. And so uh, verse 21 says that the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit and uh, says she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's literally, I don't know if it's a thing now, but when I was in high school, uh, we would get nicknames, you know, based on what attributes we had. And the thing, let's just say that you call somebody uh, Flash because they're fast. They can run fast. So you call them Flash, right? And then somebody's like, hey, man, are you fast? And you're like, what's my name? That was the thing that we used to say. What's my name? What are you talking about? That's who I am. Well, that's literally David's, uh, not David, Jesus' name is Savior. He is salvation. He's the embodiment of what it takes to save us. And every time that we read the word salvation in the Bible, we're reading Jesus' name. It's who he is. And sometimes, I don't know how you guys are, but you know, you can start feeling like maybe you're hopeless or helpless, especially if you're butting your head against the same stubborn problem or failure that you've had. Well, Jesus is still the savior of that. He's still already done everything that it takes to set you free. And as one of you prayed, you know, it may be more important the relationship that you develop walking out of a thing step by step than the actual deliverance. Because yes, he could wave a magic wand and just have you rid of your temper or 
not being faithful with your resources or whatever thing that's in your way. For some people, like I immediately think that uh, somebody like the Apostle Paul or Moses, they had a temper problem. They had it their whole lives. They clearly were fighting against it. Paul, right before he died, said, God will wash you or strike you, you whitewash wall. Still losing his temper. You had to apologize. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were the high priest, you know. I know you're not supposed to talk uh, evil of dignitaries. He knew he was wrong. Or Moses, who lost his temper when he was 40 and killed an Egyptian. And then just before it was time to enter the promised land, when he was 120 years old, lost his temper again and struck a rock representing Jesus that he was supposed to speak to. Set the wrong example. So sometimes it feels like, man, I'm never going to get over this thing. I just see it every stinking day and it's right in my face and it's driving me crazy. But Jesus already paid all of the price that it takes to deliver us from all of that. And I think it's his wisdom that he chooses not to instantly deliver us. Maybe from some things, and maybe we need that for a jump start, especially when we're first saved. I think we all probably can think of something like that, like that God just said, okay, I'm taking that burden right off. Like we're not, you're not even gonna have to work at that, that's done. But then we come face to face with other things and we find ourselves just doing this loop, this loop, this loop, and it drives you nuts. But it literally is his name that he has saved us from that. And for him, I think that it's more valuable, the person that it makes us having to lean on him for our whole walk in this life until glory, at which time it won't dog our steps anymore. So I, you could go forever looking I at want to add something to that. Yeah. Um, I heard somebody, I imagine Bill Johnson was talking about that, uh, the difference between seasons or the difference between God immediately intervening and sometimes he lets us walk through things. Sometimes, uh, you know, it seems to be a really quick healing. Sometimes it seems to be something that develops. And uh, you, you don't need to turn there, but in Psalm 23, when it, it's mentioning uh, about the, the valley of the shadow of death and you know, he says, though, even though I do walk in it, the Lord is with me. And he was making the point that there are, there's aspects of God's character, there's parts of his nature, and there are things about him that you can only come to know in the shadow. There's, there's things about uh, Jesus and the Savior that he is, the way that you know, he knows every part of us. We can only really recognize that sometimes in those areas, in things where it feels like you're hitting your head against the wall, or it seems like, uh, I think I talked about this last time, the, the way he handled the, the, the death of Lazarus, it seemed so, I mean, he knew he was going to bring him back from the dead, but he intentionally waits and he lets them go through the suffering that they go through, and it doesn't at the time it seems a strange thing and you know but he does give us insight he tells the disciples this was he actually says what it is it was very rare for god to explicitly explain what he's doing but jesus told them plainly it says this was so that you would believe it was actually for your sake right that they are dealing with the grief and the tragedy that has befallen their brother who died well before his time 
knowing that Jesus could come and intervene, they sent for him. They knew. So there's all that confusion added to it. And what did God say? It's because you would have a greater belief, you would understand the day through that. And uh, I think the Lord has made it clear that there's lots of times where we, we're in the shadow or we're not hearing any response from him uh, because that's the only way that he is able for us to recognize him sometimes. Amen. Yeah, the the dearest things to me about Jesus, they're all touch points that have come through my pain and his, honestly. The times when he suffered most are the, the most meaningful to me in his life. And the time when I've been suffering the most, they're the most precious to me when he's come to me. So I know that there's a value in that, that it far outstrips the value of not having gone through that valley and that shadow. Verse uh, 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So this was in Isaiah chapter 7, which was written about 740 years prior to this time, which is just another evidence of how powerful and knowing God is, that he's working stuff out. His plan is not even off time. Like when somebody messes something up, it doesn't mess up his timeline either. He'll get it done to the day. He literally delivered Israel 430 years to the day that he said that he would do it. His timetable is just right. And so he inspired Isaiah to say, this is going to be an evidence that this child is the Messiah. He's not just any child. And also, also, it teaches me a little something about prophecy because it says you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is a prophecy, and people would have been looking for this to be fulfilled, but he didn't say you will call his name Jesus. No, he said Emmanuel. But as far as I know, nobody ever called him that. So it doesn't have to be like literal to the letter because he is called the one in whom God is actually with us, you see. There are different ways, like it said he would be called a Nazarene. And anybody looking at that prophecy would think, okay, so he's going to take a Nazarite vow. He'll be like John the Baptist. He won't cut his hair. He'll wear it up in seven braids. He'll never touch anything unclean, you know. Uh, but no, God fulfilled that just by having him li live in Nazareth for a time. So seeing that uh, this way that he would be born that has impacted Mary and Joseph, these two uh Paragon, uh, paragons of virtue. I just love the, those two people. Uh, that he had called that shot almost a thousand years beforehand. You see how their lives fit into something much, much bigger? So do yours. So does mine. See, that changes our perspective on things. And all that God requires is our faithful heart. And he's still getting stuff done, you know? And I know that I can't be the only one who can get overwhelmed by circumstances that seem to be getting outside the lines. Like I, I thought things were going to go this way. You know, I expected these outcomes. 
And then when it's not happening or when things just look terrible or scary, it's not. It can feel that way and it's it's legitimate to have your feelings and there's no point in hiding them from the Lord. You can pour them all out before him. Uh, David in, in the Psalms has taught us that. But it's important to look at how he's done things and to remember he's still doing stuff the same way, still getting things done exactly on time and according to his plan. And then uh, verse 24 it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did what the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son and called his name Jesus. Those matter-of-fact statements are some of my favorite in the whole Bible. He just did what God said. He was just faithful. And how much was riding on that? You see? And I love that Like every time you read through somebody's life, you can read through David or Moses or just pick somebody. And it's just the Lord said to do something that just blew your mind. Like he said to Abraham, uh, you know, take Isaac and sacrifice him. And he went through a night like the time that Joseph was trying to figure stuff out when it said while he pondered this. Clearly that night, like when the scripture says that Abraham got up early the next day, I don't know it, but I speculate that he didn't sleep. I cannot imagine him going to sleep that night thinking about taking his son up to the top of the mountain. I mean, much less not only losing the son of promise, but coming back home and explaining what had happened. Of course, Paul gives us an insight later and says that he finally got to a place and I bet he didn't do it till the day dawned. I bet it was just like wrestling with God all night long that he decided, well, look, God promised me things through this miracle baby. And he will keep his word. If he's, if he's having me sacrifice him, he will raise him up. And he got up and he just went and did what the Lord said. And there's a great uh, power in just being faithful and trusting that the Lord's going to work things out. So I want to open it up to discussion. And I'm just going to say a word or two uh, that has occurred to me, which is... Uh, you don't need to be shy about, like if you have questions or comments or a scripture, that's the function of us getting to talk to each other. You're not usurping your place. If you're a woman and you're feeling like, well, I don't want to teach or get out of order. It's beautiful when the Lord brings a thought through you or has had a scripture. This, this Having a discussion openly or contributing to a conversation is not like taking over. It's not the same thing. Um, and two... There's a value, like I think of how it was, you know, Jesus would go out and he would preach. You can read that in all of the New Testament um, Gospels. But then he would be hanging out with the disciples and they would start talking about, well, what did this stuff mean? And they had valuable things to contribute and they learned from, like, I'm sure that the fact that Peter piped up and asked a question or made a comment, I bet you the other guys were thinking a lot of the same stuff. He was just the kind of guy that would say it, you know, and then... Look at how many things are revealed. So um, I'm, I regret that we didn't have more of this before, but I think it's really healthy for us to get to talk about the things that the Lord has put on our heart through the week or, uh, you know, on this particular topic that it, does, it shouldn't, doesn't have to be and shouldn't solely be some kind of a monologue, you know, that we get to talk about stuff. So. I will shut up just to prove that miracles still happen. I have a question. Was there a um, prophecy in the Old Testament that stated that 
the Lord would be born of a virgin? Yeah, Isaiah 7. Okay. Um, hold on, let me find that. There are lots and lots of prophecies, but it literally, that's uh, word for word. I can't remember which verse. I'm going to have to kind of flip through. Oh, good job. You want to read that one? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So it's, it's quoted more or less verbatim there in the Matthew's Gospel. Give up your previous marriage. 
seems counterintuitive, but being chosen by God to do something extraordinary very often means that you will suffer extraordinarily. You know? Like, it seems like it should be that, well, if the Lord said, cross this lake, then you should have safe passage across. It shouldn't be such that you're dying, the storm whips up, and we're doing nothing more than what he said. Look at Joe. Right? What we know about Joe, really, all, I mean, his whole story is he got smacked everything but his life. Right. God took it away. Everything. Right. I mean, even his own wife got to the point where he has to say, you're acting like a sinner. You, you, you be a foolish woman, I am a fool. If you know things, it can't at all. But that's what he said, is how to know facts and go. Right. It both proves and develops it, doesn't it? Right. Like it must later to be there, but it is not refined until acted on. So right. clearly they had faithful hearts, but it is a different thing to be on this side versus being on that side of the decision, well, you know? Gold is gold. It's very nice, but we found with all the drugs, it's taken out of it. It's even more than fire. Oh, even it says... Go ahead. No, you uh, I was just going to say, we get insights into it saying that um, Jesus learned obedience to the things he suffered. So obviously, we can expect so. And for me, anyway, were you going to say something? Better? I was just going to say this reminds me of what uh, happened when. Uh, John <laughs> sent some of his people to Jesus. Jesus wasn't, didn't say like, yeah, of course. Right. He just told them, he was like, you go tell them. Yeah, here's the evidence. The dead are raised, the blind see, yeah. the deaf hear, and yeah. sent them on their way, which I love that he wasn't, he didn't overboard. He yeah. didn't say like, I'm going to try to convince you. He just said, you go, go tell them what you've seen. Well, and Jesus would have known because he was there obviously being baptized by him. Yeah. And he knew because John confessed. That's First, the thing. He like, sent those like, two disciples over. Happened after. And Jesus knew what that meant. It's yeah. like, oh, so. And also, he confessed that, look, God told me a long time ago, before I started baptizing people, that the one that I see the Holy Spirit descend and remain on, that that's the Son of God. Yeah. 
And so he knew. Like, he already had the evidence. It's just mm -hmm. the spot that he was in was assailing his faith. And I think we all know what that's like, you know. Like, we know. We know who the Lord is. We know that he's faithful. But sometimes in the dark moments, um, well, it's hard to remember that. And we need a little. So that's what Jesus gave him. He's like, Lord, you think back on what's happened? Yeah. What is the proof? What do you see? Uh, he never went overboard with anybody to try to convince. Well, it would take, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's kind of like what we were saying. It's one thing to borrow a belief. It's another thing to own one. Right. So you can borrow from people, and we all do. Like growing up, our parents sort of hand feed us our beliefs, and we absorb it from our environment or what have you. But we don't own those beliefs. They're borrowed. The point that we start to own them is when we do the hard work of thinking things through, and we start making commitments, and we start working it out. Now we're transferring those beliefs from their account to our personal account. And then when they're tested, like whether or not they stand on it. Kind of what you were talking about with Mary and Joseph, like maybe God makes who they want to prove it to them. Yeah. It makes me think of First Peter, um, chapter one, verse seven, to verse six, when he's saying, "You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, like it's not without the trials and the testing that your faith is found true." Right. You can say all day long, I believe this and I believe that, but it's when it's put through the ringer. And I think it's proven more to yourself than it is to the Lord. I mean, it's both, but you know, He knows the end from the beginning. Amen. So right. He knows what Job's going to do. He knows what Mary's going to do. He knows what Abraham's going to do. Is it him? Is it Abraham that he says, now I know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and now we know. I think you sometimes know? the way He talks to us is for us. You know, like he's saying it that way, but you're right. Like God knew before he did. But we didn't know. We didn't know how strong the faith was. Right. Like it feels us, The reality and the future are unfolded one day after dilatory day, right? But to God, he sees all of time. Like it's all, it's not as if he, he doesn't have realizations. He doesn't have questions. It's like our faith is not really valuable to us until it's proven. Yeah. Amen. Like otherwise, it doesn't mean much. Right. Yeah, because I was just thinking the same thing. A lot of times what God is looking for is for you to put it in action. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, instead of waiting for him to intervene all the time, uh, act as if you you expect him to. Right. Because he will. Yeah. may not be exactly what you're thinking, but that's, not, that's beside the point. That's really not that relevant, honestly. Right. But um, I think... You know, there's there's a tremendous amount of uh, value in behaving like you know that he's good and always good and can only do good. And nothing that's going on is outside of, like you were saying, there's no realization that he's in need of. So, you know the scripture that says that uh, perfect love casts out fear. So... One of the ways that you can understand love when it's perfected is the teleos, which means not flawless, but completed love. Right. Like if you look at love, like love is who God is. Love is also how God behaves, like all of 1 Corinthians 13, basically laying out love is like this, love does this, love behaves this way. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a love like where you understand things that are true and that are good and that are right. And 
in an in, just while that's intellectual, then you can be flooded with fear over a thing and believe, well, God is good. And, but when you act that love out, which is kind of what you're saying, just act it out. You know that God's going to take care of you, so you're free to uh, love your enemy, to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. You can do that. And it's so interesting to me that acting it out will drive the fear out. And that it says it casts out fear. It does. Not that it doesn't have fear. Right. Fear will never be present. It's that by acting it out, sure. it will be cast out. So it's not like there's ever any anxiety, any fear. It's like, well, we never had perfect love. You know? Right. It's like it's a process. Right. Also, the, what you were pointing out, Cindy, about the being able to have confidence regarding your heart, your position with the Lord, <laughs> all those things have to be squared away before you're able to do any of the walking the belief because it's impossible to have any confidence because there's there's just too many ways for the devil to use that type of thinking. We know that that's how Satan works. We, that's the whole nature of our warfare that Paul explained. It's like it's, it is thoughts. It's ways of thinking that God has given us the tools, the weapons necessary to tear those things down so we can think the way that he thinks because we have the mind of Christ. We have his heart. But if you still are thinking, like, I need to pray for God to accept me, I need to pray for God to uh, give me a, a, a clean heart, or instead of looking at it as it's like I'm always relying on him to renew me, and that's a, that's a co-labor, that's something you do together. It's not, you know, in that constant state of, God, I need you to come and rescue me. Because you never, you never, you won't ever be able to have an actionable faith if that is not squared away, and you have the confidence in knowing it's like he's happy to see me, he's attentive to what I'm praying, and he wants to answer my prayers. If we look at Jesus in his moment, the greatest thing before the cross, Gethsemane, he's grappling with fear to the point that he wants to die. It's the hardest moment. Nobody ever faced anything like that. So he, he wrestles with it. He's praying as long as there's time to pray. And it's pushing him so hard emotionally and mentally and spiritually that his, his blood vessels are breaking and mingling with his sweat, you know, stomach turning over. But notice there's a time when it's time to stand up. Okay, stand up now. Your time for praying is over. You've prayed. Now act. Step forward. Well, who are you looking for then? And I think that that's sort of the deal. Like you, you might have to wrestle all night. We probably all have on occasion might have to do it again. But you do your battle with that stuff. And then when it's time, you just stand up like you stand up like Abraham and you get your son and you saddle up the, the donkeys and you head out to do what God said. Or, you know, if you're Joseph you get up and you just do what the angel just told you to do. You take him at his word. And of course, you know, Joseph, I don't know how long he lived. Uh, it's hard for me to find in the Bible exactly at what stage that he died. But he certainly lived long enough to see the vindication of that. He saw who Jesus was and he saw the way the Lord provided for him and for Mary. And so... Um, 
the moment, you know, it's interesting, the words that the angel said, don't be afraid to take your wife to yourself. Because, of course, you would have to be, because you couldn't be righteous and, you know, stay connected with someone who had been unfaithful. But he was saying that's not what it is. And, you know, that all worked out just fine. But he couldn't know it beforehand. He had to walk it out. about something that I've been missing for a long time. Um, I, I guess when I, I guess it's common for a Christian to go, I'm forgiven, that's the thing, I'm forgiven. But then that gets dull rather quickly. Okay, I'm forgiven. I keep making the same mistakes, you know. But then you're missing the part where it says, so I'm gonna screw it up a little here, but it's, it's basically, if we were reconciled to him while we were still enemies in his death, how much more through his life? Right. It's unbelievable what he's offering. Right. Life now. You were like his we were talking, enemy then. Yeah. And he sent Jesus to die for you. Well, which is the greatest sacrifice. So now that you're not an enemy, now you're family. Yeah. Now you're a bride of Christ or part yeah. of the bride of Christ. And you've done less and you want him to give you less. If he's done the more, certainly. It's kind of like. If, if you're sick and you're going to die, and you say, like, I'm sick, I'm going to die. And I say, Sandy, I'm going to die unless you give me a kidney. Would you give me a kidney? And you're like, yeah, okay, I'll do that to save your life. So you do. And then next month, I, I'm like, oh, I'm so afraid to ask you this. I, I know this is a lot to ask, but uh, would you give me a cup of sugar? Well, yeah, dude, I just gave you a kidney. If I'll give you a kidney, I'll give you a cup of sugar. Well, it's kind of like that, right? Like, if he would do what he did while we were his enemies, then now, wouldn't he give us... I mean, what would he withhold this time? Well, it's like it says, how would he not freely give you all things? Yeah. But that's what you're talking about specifically in reference to the forgiveness part? Well, I think a lot of Christians will just... um, We're forgiven. Now, what's next? You know, living in that state of just forgiveness. And then you get caught up in just church. Yeah. Which you just start serving, you're like, what am I even doing? Like, I and mean, then you just get fatigued, you know? Well, you remember, like, what Paul said in reference to that very thing? He said the target was reigning in life. Right, exactly. exactly. That's a whole different mindset. Reign, reign in life through his life. Most Christians do not think like that. Right. They think, like, thank God the hell has been canceled. That's what I'm driving That's at. That's a good place sure. to yeah. start. Yeah. But. The point he was making there was he's saying if he went to the extreme right. while you were an enemy and gave his son, how much more so will that grace for you now that have been forgiven cause you to reign in life? Yes. To where you now get to live the way you live. Yeah. You, whatever situation you go into, it's good yeah. because the spirit of the Lord is there. Right. And where that spirit is, there's liberty and it changes everything. You don't walk around like wondering you know what am I going to do and you don't live reactionary you have a purpose you know why you're here yes and every person you come in contact with you have what they need you know it's like the the the, the resources that we have available to us uh, are for like it says every good work mm. that's so different I mean that's like that's the maturing of understanding the intervention that God has done on our behalf. Yeah. It's like he did redeem us. He did make us righteous, but it's more than just like, we don't have to be destroyed. It's 
But then that, that one of the sections I loved in that book that you sent me was where he said like you, you get to like you get to live with him now. Like you get to have what book was it? I don't know because he just sent me like two pages screenshots of it. Oh okay. But it's Eldridge, I'm sure. I also like that it's an example of an insoluble problem between two people. Like if you want to look at a complicated problem between two people, you're betrothed, and by all appearances, the one to whom you're betrothed has been unfaithful. Now how do you solve that dilemma? So any difficulty that exists between us and another person that seems insoluble, it's not. It is solvable. The Lord can solve it. And we can be just as faithful as Mary was faithful or as Joseph was faithful. And the Lord has just as much at stake in that. In other words, it's part of his plan that he saw coming. So for me, I mean, the deal with uh, my mother, that's very complex. And I still still have to deal with it. Uh, I prayed on two separate seasons for seasons of time after I found out where she lived uh, about going to try to reconcile. I wanted to witness to her, you know, like I got to do with my dad. Um, but I was only, I can't say the Lord spoke out loud to me, but I can say that he made it clear that I wasn't to do that. Let's put it that way. Um, so I haven't, there's been nothing that I could do for her. But I have been able to pray, and I still pray. And it's not like the Lord's arm is short. He can still reach out. And it's, it's, it wouldn't be a difficult thing for him to give her a dream, you know. So I, I don't get to be part of that, at least not yet, <laughs> if she's still alive. But the Lord knows my heart and that I want to be and that I'm willing to be. And so if he, he could do the same thing that he did with just like he could show me in a dream or speak to me directly and say, okay, now you can go. This is where she is. But whichever way, you know, anything that's less than that, we all grapple with it. Like it, there's friction in uh, dealing with people in this world. And sometimes it's hard to know what to do. But God is still God and he still works in the same way. And so it gives me a lot of comfort just to know that if I'm faithful, that he'll do it. You know, and I don't have to worry about what the outcome is going to be. Heavenly Father, thank you again that we can come together and seek you and worship you and to hear your word. So thank you for these these days that are upon us. Um, the, the season we're going into I, Lord I also just thank you for the feasts that are coming up and, and the opportunity we'll have to just be together as a body and to worship you and to seek you and we pray for your blessing to be upon everything we do and Lord we look forward to your spirit and, and your presence and just encountering you Lord I ask that you would also uh, bless the food and uh, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.